Start off with a little word association. Okay. What comes to mind when I say these four words? Suck, squeeze, bang, blow. I don't know if we can talk about that on this podcast, man. (laughs) (laughs) No, starting a motor. Okay, pretty close. Pretty close. Uh, I I was kind of hoping that you would say a fun Friday night in Vegas, maybe once upon a time. But that's the four-stage or uh, how a four-cycle engine works. Yeah. Suck, squeeze, bang, blow, right? Every Almost every internal combustion engine on the planet works this way, to include our turbofan engines in our fighter jets. This is the B1 Change 1 podcast, where our mission is to help listeners to find values, practice integrity, and inspire change. Our vision is to mentor men and empower them to achieve more by taking responsibility for shaping their own lives. He's Cass, an evolving man who has been shaped by adversity and continues to grow through his imperfections. And he's Roscoe, an imperfect work in progress that tries to suck less every day. Between us, we have over 40 years of Air Force fighter pilot experience with countless hours as trainers, instructors, and mentors. Join us and learn to take responsibility for your own life as we dive into subjects from leadership to resilience to vulnerability. Be the one who changes their course. Be decisive, driven, and purposeful. Set the example for others. Lead. We wish we'd had this show when we were younger men. Be the one. In the opening scene in Top Gun Maverick, he talked about scramjet. Yeah. I didn't know this, so I went and looked it up. Scram is an acronym. Yeah, oh, I didn't know either. Yeah, so ramjet made sense, and I was like, "Well, what the hell is what the hell is scramjet?" So scramjet technology is supersonic combustion ramjet, mm-hmm. and scramjet technology has been around since the fifties. Yeah, well, they were. That's I think they used a lot of that to build and develop the motors for the SR seventy one. From what I understand, that was where that was. I mean, that was still a turbofan engine, but yeah, it was. It but was a lot of the. But that's what led to. Um, in fact, in Top Gun Maverick, the model airplane that, at least from what I could find, it was called an SR-72. Yeah, and I heard Lock- Lockheed actually helped them design that. Oh, well. That's what okay, I actually so heard. You want to go down I don't conspiracy? Know if it's true or you not. You want to go conspiracy theory? Like, not... It's not it's not a real jet, right? So, but I well, heard that they, may, they helped them with the designs for what they built for the movie so that it looked realistic. I don't even know if I would go as far as to say that it's not a real stupid. jet. It might be. Something close to it. So the, the rule of thumb that I'd always heard was whenever a jet hits IOC, which means it's now into operations and we're, we're starting to figure it out, by the time that point happens, its replacement is already probably being built in a hangar somewhere. That's probably true. So I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on in Groom Lake and Tonopah and Edwards. It's a lot of, a lot of undisclosed runways. And Palmdale. I'm just saying. I mean, and, there's a reason that Palmdale which is where Lockheed has yeah. Skunk Works is in close proximity to Edwards Air See, Force See, we're already getting into good shit here, <laughs> and we haven't even started yet. We haven't even said what this fucking episode is about. I know, right? Right? Well, you did, kind of. You said Top Gun Maverick. Well, I mean, that could have just been us sitting around yeah, that's drinking a beer and watching a cool guy Although show. Although I couldn't watch it for three hours, I'll <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> I didn't watch it. I was pausing. <laughs> I've seen it now three times. I watched it twice in the, in the movie theater last year when it came out, and I went and saw it with my father-in-law. The first cool. time. Yeah, he's a he's a, a hornet wizzo. And so he, he speaks the Navy language as well. And it was fun for he and I to kind of play back and forth with each other during the movie. There was a lot of, yeah. a lot of ribbing going on anyways. 
Uh, and then I took, uh, I took Colin to see it when I was trying to convince him to, to join the air force. I took him to go see it more as a motivational. I mean, I said it, I think in, in the first episode that we did, how the first Top Gun, when it came out, that was, I mean, that was what captivated my attention and, yeah. and really got me into, into airplanes in general and, and fighter jets and all that stuff. So it was really kind of the, the, the leading recruiting tool for a lot of years. Yeah, it was big in our, when yeah. we were kids, that's for sure. And nowadays, with the numbers as low as they are, the recruiting numbers across the board, yeah. regardless of service, I'm really hoping that this serves the same purpose here in 2022, 2023, uh, where it'll start to energize some of these younger kids. You know, there might be a nine-year-old that saw Top Gun Maverick and maybe doesn't want to grow up to play shirtless football on the beach, but he wants to fly fighters. Yeah. So I guess that's a dead giveaway of what this episode's about. Yeah. Top Gun Maverick. Kind of. Let's have some fun with it. All right. So. Well, hold on. Let's say no, what no, we're no, going to do. Let's say what we're going to talk about. Go, so go before we get started, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at four of the main characters in Top Gun Maverick, which is Maverick, Rooster, uh, what was his name? Hangman, Hangman and Bob. Yep. And we're kind of going to go through each one of those and pull out some things that we both saw about personality traits and egos and and have a discussion around it. Maybe values. But there's so much more. There is. There's so much more. So go ahead, Roscoe. Um, I was just thinking about the symbolism of the first scene of the movie and the last scene of the movie. Tom Cruise in a hangar working on his P-51. He happens to have his own repair manual there and, uh, you know, his 10 millimeter socket, which we all know is bullshit because nobody can find the 10 millimeter socket. That's right. And, but I thought, oh, by that, the way, all captains in the uh, Navy can afford a P-51, just so you true, know. True, true. Yeah. He, he, he probably Jesus. had it donated to him somewhere. Knowing him, he probably stole it. Yeah. But the symbolism I thought was kind of cool about, you know, from the first movie with him and Goose, and he never really got past that. Mm-hmm. And and you, you saw glimpses of that even in this movie. But kind of maybe there's some symbolism there with his P-51 about just living in the past too long, man. Yeah. And then we quickly cut into him being in the Death Star, which is really awesome. Yeah. Trying to go Mach 10 whatnot. Well, that first scene where he's taken off basically against orders. Yep. He's, he's been ordered to stand, to stand down. He goes, you know what? Screw the man. I'm going to take off anyway, and we're going to try this out. Yeah. And he blows the lid off of the shack yeah. at the end of the runway with, the, with oh, what was that guy's name? Ed Harris yeah. is standing there, Admiral so-and-so. He's standing there, and he just wow, gets his toupee blown off. All right. Well, I have a real-world story about that. Okay. And I got to tell this cool guy story. Okay. So we're in Bagram, 2008, and flying strike eagles in operation during freedom. And Bagram, Bagram sits in a bowl, surrounded by mountains on all sides, and so our standard takeoff profile was max AB, get the gear up, hug the deck to 400 knots, and then jack the nose to get up out of the, any kind of surface-to-air threat. Yeah, we did combat uh, departures yeah. in Iraq yeah. all the time, too. Sh- uh, Shoulder-fired missiles, the SA-7s were prolific over there and whatnot. So hug the deck had some... Yeah, there's some... There's some rules. There's some room. Right? There, there's some room for interpretation there. Well, we had a pilot that was exploring the space a little bit, and uh, he was intentionally holding it down pretty close to nape of the earth, and he buzzed a bus, the, 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 the road that goes around the airfield, the ring road, we had to ride the bus from one side of the airfield to the other uh, every day to go flying. And the ops group commander was on this bus, right over his head, shakes the whole bus, and, and just like the admiral in the first Top Gun spills his coffee, and he's pissed, right? So he comes and yells at our squadron commander. Squadron commander then yells at our pilot, 
uh, grounds him for a few days, slap on the wrist. Yeah. Or not. No shit. Guy does it again. And the OG in the same bus at the same spot got buzzed <laughs> by the same dude. And so that guy got unceremoniously sent home sent from home. Afghanistan yeah. and he never flew jets again. Yeah. So that, that's the reality. That's reality. And that's, <laughs> you know, leading into to what I think is probably going to be a really fun discussion here. It's going to be Top Gun is a drama. It's not necessarily a documentary. It's a movie. Yeah. So Hollywood prevails. Yes. Moving into, you know, kind of after that scene where he gets stood up in kind of the same fashion as the first movie, really gets stood up by the man and he kind of has that same remember the what was the, i can't remember the the captain of the boat he always had that cigar yeah. in his mouth and and the first I, I can't believe this i gotta send you a top gun where yeah ed harris's character basically says the same damn thing and yeah and uh and sends him back and you can tell that maverick just really doesn't want to go yep what what had changed you know because like when he was a younger kid that's all he wanted yeah you know, he was just foaming at the mouth to go to weapon school to go to top gun man and then here we are. I mean, in the movie, we're 30, 30 years later or something. Mm-hmm. But what changed? Well, my guess is for him at that point, when he was a younger man, he was trying to prove himself. He was trying to prove that he was the best. And one of the ways that he felt he could do that was to go to Top Gun and be number one and put that patch on his shoulder. Because Top Gun and or the Air Force Weapons School for us in the Air Force, you have that patch on your shoulder. When you walk into a room, it's instant credibility, right? It's... Okay, that guy's gone yeah. and done something hard and knows what he's doing in the jet. So that's my guess. You know, where by that point, 30 years later, he had already achieved probably most of the accolades that he was looking for. You know, he was in the movie the only guy that ever shot down three jets or whatever and mm-hmm. had done all these different things. He had kind of pigeonholed himself off into a small corner where maybe he could do what he wanted to do without a lot of adult supervision, which is what it sounds, seems like he was doing in the test world. And so... I think that's what changed for him. Which, by the way, uh, just a sidebar, it's not unheard of to go, you know, line IP to Top Gun and then eventually go to weapons or to to test pilot school. Yep, some I mean, guys I, I do. Know, I know a, a handful of There's guys. A couple. Most guys go one track or the other yeah. for the most part. Yeah. The, the vast majority. But it's not unheard of. So, but it's not unheard of. Yeah, so that's not totally made up, I guess. But uh, it sounded like he was, or, or, or kind of the, I guess the gist that I got, you know, into the second movie was, he was sort of trying to remove himself from gen pop a little yeah. bit, you know, like I don't want to deal with people. I yeah. Just, he's out in the middle of the Mojave desert living in a hangar by himself. Yeah. I, I'd say that's fair. So that's, an, that's just an interesting, interesting transition from the first movie to the second movie, just watching his character arc and how maybe his values had changed over time. He's now in 06. He's not really in charge of anything. Yeah. Maybe he just had a little more flexibility in his older age too. Cause he had a little more rank. You know, instead of flying the line, being an ops guy kind of a thing. I think what's interesting for me in general, though, is so the hero of the movie is Maverick. And what's Maverick? He's a loner. Yeah. He's a rule breaker. He's a guy that doesn't think any of the rules apply to him. He can do whatever he wants. Generally speaking, yeah. You know, he has a very difficult time expressing feelings and maintaining relationships, whether it's female or male. Yeah. How much of that is versus on purpose? Yeah. I don't know. You know, but you know, you just look at the track records, right? Like yeah. that's just how it is. <laughs> Leave a wake of destruction behind you. Yeah. yeah. And then he likes to push boundaries. Can't forgive himself for the past. Can't break away from his past. Like he hasn't taken any of the time required to deal with all of those issues that follow him. Yeah. In those regards. 
And so it's just, that's interesting to me, right? Like that's the, that's, that's your guy. That's yeah. the, that's the male. That's the cool, super cool fighter pilot that everybody should emulate and try to be like is yeah. this dude who's a total loner, completely messed up emotionally, can't deal with his past and it thinks none of the rules apply to him and doesn't yeah. want to be accountable to anybody for it. I, I bet you we both know a long list of people that are like that. There are some people that I know that are like that, but I mean, dude, you, as you know, and as you just kind of alluded to with your, your cool guy story, there's not, if you have that attitude in the air force, especially flying fighters, you're not going to be around very long. Yeah. There's not a high tolerance. For nope. It. There's not no, a high tolerance. And, and not it. only from a rules and instructions, and boundaries standpoint, but from a peer review standpoint, yeah. there's just not a lot of room. And that's that. not to say that there aren't times where you can smartly question your leaders or provide advice to your leaders about something, or that there aren't times where maybe you do lean forward in the jet and push a little or be a little more aggressive around something. But a lot of that has to be very tempered. Yeah. And, you know, a note that I had written down from the movie is there are several instances throughout this two-hour tale of just outright disrespect yeah for authority and rank absolutely and dude that shit doesn't fly no like okay we always talk about the rank is off in the debrief yeah. but that's behind a closed door with the dudes only the dudes that were there so all i'm going to tell you is if you're a test pilot and you take an aircraft up on a test unsanctioned and then because your ego's so fucking big that you have to push it above Mach 10 to see what you can do, and you trash that however hundreds of millions, millions or billions of dollars that have been dumped into that program, there's no four-star admiral, whether he's pack fleet or not, that can save your ass. <laughs> Yeah, like there's, there's no there's no ice man. You're breaking you rocks in Leavenworth for the rest that's of your right. life for that. That's yes. So uh, let's just make sure that that's clear to everybody. Again, drama, not a documentary. Yeah, and I and mean, and in some respects too, like the thing that hit me was what a fucking dick move for all the people on that team that were working on that jet. Yeah, you know, now they were all like going, "Oh yeah, this is cool, go Maverick," because it's the fucking movies, right? But dude, he just took that entire program and trashed it. For his own fucking ego. Yes, but there's there's a couple of lines exchanged in there between Maverick and the warrant officer, Hondo. Hondo. All right. So Hondo, as he's getting ready to step to the jet, Hondo says, Mav, you know what happens if you do this, right? Yeah. And he kind of looks around at the team and he goes, well, I know what happens if I don't. Because the program was going to get scrubbed right. anyway. All right, so... In that regard, I, by I, up the you see, and th and this is true throughout the movie. You see these glimpses of compassion, sure, from Maverick. And That's that, true. I'll that give you that glimpses, and and maybe not just wholesale until maybe the very end, where everybody embraces in this big hug. And I guess and, my point is, in the real world, everybody on that team that went ahead and yeah. followed him in doing that would have been breaking rocks next to him in Leavenworth as well. Oh, 100 percent, because it, at any point, any one of those guys could have said no. Yeah, they were and, all fallible. Yes, so. There's a lesson to take away from there. Don't just blindly follow what you think the the guy in charge wants to do. If it's yeah. dumb, anybody has an opportunity to stop that yeah, shit. Yeah, that's true. All right, so following that, he gets called back to, to Top Gun. Yep. All right, and he's standing in front of two admirals. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a comical conversation. They started breaking out what the mission is. Yeah. All right, and I thought that this was, this was a good – we're going to have some fun discussion around oh, this. Oh, God. All right. 
Well, I mean, just from a, it's, it's Hollywood. I got well, let's, it. Let's just go. The cinematography this. was awesome. Let me just say that. It was. It was fabulous. Yeah. Uh, I think the Blue Angels flew a lot of the real scenes yeah, out there. Yeah, the cinematography. And, and it was They actually was had phenomenal. the actors in the back seats. Yeah. I mean, it was. The cinematography was awesome. It was great. And I'm, this is in no way bashing the movie. I love the movie. Yeah. I thought it was great. But let's separate some, some fact and fiction here. You're at Red Flag. Yeah. Red Flag is a, a giant large force exercise put on by the Air Force couple times a year and i mean we're talking hundreds of planes in the sky at one time literally hundreds thousands of people involved in this every day for like three weeks yeah what's the planning cycle for that that's a whole day before 12 hours 12 hours they had three weeks to yeah. plan up a mission three weeks yeah and it wasn't that difficult seriously Okay, you're going to fly in a canyon, low level. Well, and they you're were doing pop, it with four aircraft. You're going to pop to a target, and you're going to put LGBs on the yeah, target. I could have put like, a better plan together for you with 60 aircraft in eight hours. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I wrote down I wrote down here, I was like, really? I mean, this was like a standard four-flug upgrade in the strike. Yeah, we, would, we would fly in low level, pop to an LGB attack, yeah. and then dive back out. This is your low-level pop attack ride on Seriously. any upgrade. Have you, did you ever go to the... Uh, Minus to the, the, I have to pull 12 Gs in the recovery part. <laughs> well... Rip the wings off the F-18. We'll get yeah. to that. Did you ever go up to the Hags bombing area up the north Uter, the Utah training and test range? Uh, no, I've never been up in the north side, just the south side. Okay, so up there, they got the Hags. I don't forget what that stands for, but um, it's on the east side of a mountain range. And so the cool attack is to load up your jet with Mark 82s, 500-pound, pretty much dummy bombs, right? And you fly in at 500 feet, and you do a whip pop, over the mountain. So you're coming oh, into yeah. the target area inverted. You have just enough time to roll out, plink it off and then get, so then like go. this is these attacks that they're doing. This is common. Yeah, it's what we like, do every day. Dude, I had to do low level CBU in weapon school. And that's no fun. Cause like the, the safe escape maneuver for that is mm. stupid. Ridiculous. Cause those bomblets can go everywhere. Well, they so, were dropping 2000 pound, at least what they had on their jet was 2000 pound, GB-24s, K-43s. Yeah. So, I mean, they would have done the job for sure, but there's so many other weapons out there. Yeah. Like, we got to have this exact impact. They won't do JDAM from 20 miles away. I know, and they they talked about (laughs) GPS jamming, but come on, man. You could have taken one B-2 stealth bomber and flew it over that. None of those SA-6s would have ever seen it and been done in a a day. I I wrote that down. I was like, one B-2 takes care of this entire movie. This movie's five minutes long. Yeah. Like, all right. So, whatever. That was... a lot of comedy from from people who understand that, and I'm I'm sure it's the same if like you know boxers are watching boxing movies or like my wife does this with nursing movies all the time or nursing shows. She she goes off on they never leave the bed rails down, rah, you know, yeah, shit like that. So so then he's introduced to us. Oh, whoa, whoa, there's the bar scene, and this is where we get introduced to the characters. Yeah, really, the 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 meat of the characters. Maverick, obviously, he's going to be the mainstay, but then this is where we meet. Hangman, Hangman for the first time. What was mm-hmm. your first impressions of Hangman? He's a complete douchebag, man. <laughs> That's my impression of Hangman. Like, and so my impressions of Hangman are ego-driven, out for himself in the accolades. He's a bully. And in my experience, most of the time, those guys that are bullies with a lot of bravado are very insecure. Probably valid. Yeah. He also happened to be probably the best pilot in the room. He probably was. I mean, just as far as raw talent. Yeah, was, sure yeah. as raw talent. But see, but that's, <laughs> but and I'm sure we're going to talk about this yeah. though, right? But that it's so much more than that, right? It's not just about the raw skill you have yeah. necessarily. Yeah. 
Because well, it's not even just talking about pilots. No, right not now. just this talking is, about this pilots is people in, in general. general. Yeah. But even even in, in pilots too, right? Because you don't execute as a single ship unless yeah. you're hangman at the last scene where you're shooting down the one last Su-35 or whatever, right? Because, yeah, they're yeah, going right. to launch him by himself. You know, everything's two-ship minimum, four-ship typically. Yeah. I mean, our, our baseline employment was four-ship always, except for Iraq and Afghanistan. That was a special war where we enjoyed air superiority, though. Yeah, that, and that's the only reason we were doing yeah. it. Yeah, it's just funny to me. Well, let's let's just I'm gonna I'm gonna let's deep dive into that for just a second, right? Because like we both lived in the single seat world for a really long time. Yeah, and and there's a certain mentality that goes into that. Yeah, like you have to know, not think, but you have to know that you have your shit together. Yeah, but there's a difference between cockiness and confidence. True, but I'm getting to a point here. True. But at the same time, even though you are a lone dude and you're the mayor of Cockpit City, yeah, you're still part of a team. You are. And there's a reason that we have wingmen. Wingmen check each other's six. And there's a reason that it's important to be in the correct formation and, and do these things correctly, right? You have a flight leader, and then you have an extension of that with the wingmen, and everybody has a role on that team. Like, nobody's going out there in their Viper or their Eagle or their F-35 and doing this shit by themselves. Yeah. This is... A metaphor for life, right? You're not gonna you're not gonna go out into real life and be expected to execute by yourself. So learn how to rely on your teammates. Yeah. And and help your teammates. Like in the last episode, you were talking about accountability being a piece of integrity. And I think that's so huge, man, because when you walk back into the room at the end of a mission, it's holding yourself accountable. Yeah, it's accountability it's central. Holding your wingman and your and your flight mates accountable yeah. and it's allowing them to hold you accountable or, GC, are, or gci if you had weapon directors on that specific ride right 100%. it's everybody in the room you hold accountable yeah, red air for their presentations i mean yeah you've you've been to a, a weapon school support right yeah what what happens if you get a shot call wrong in a weapon school acmi debrief it doesn't end well no you're done yeah. right so yeah accountability is a big piece of it yeah I, I thought that that was my impressions of Hangman were almost identical. Just one pile onto that was he's probably been the guy that's been told he's the best his entire life. Well, he's probably outperformed everybody in exactly. every. He's the guy that outperformed everybody yep. in every training program that he'd been in, whether it was yep. pilot training or the F eighteen brag. Take or it back to high school. Whatever. Yeah. Maybe yeah, I a mean, good athlete. When he was growing up. Performer in high school. It's clear. I mean, he's all cut up with shredded abs and stuff. It's clear that he's an athletic guy. Yeah. Right. And, and takes care of his body and stuff. And so probably from the time that he was a young kid, he's been told you're the best, man. You know what cracks me up though? So I was having this conversation because Alicia and I watched it together. She's like, yeah, hangman is, you know, ice from the first, we were talking about the yeah, corollary. hundred percent. Yeah. I don't think so. I think he's math. Oh, see, I don't know. I don't Egotistical, know. I'm number one, I'm the best. I mean, the thing, ice was, ice flew, ice cold, right? But he didn't leave his wingman. That's true. That's true. He right? also he also wasn't, well, in the, the, tactics in in the movie, he the wasn't. the tactics cold, but. He, in the movie, he wasn't afforded that opportunity. If he, would, he were afforded the opportunity, do you think he would have done it? No, because, I mean, he was just as egotistical as far as the bravado that they try to show in these films mm -hmm. and stuff like that, but. No, man, I think I think Hangman was more the reflection of Mav in the first movie before the tragedy with Goose than he is Iceman. I could see that. There's definitely lines of parallel between the two. I, I personally would have leaned a little more towards Ice. Yeah, because well, I, I think that's you know, how they Ice, set it up. In, in, the, in, the, in the opening bar scene in the first movie, Ice is the one that's like, hey, man, did you figure it out yet? Yeah, I Who's know. the best pilot? You know, and, and that's almost word for word what, yeah, I know. what, uh, what Hangman says. So I think that was probably intentional. Anyways, yeah. 
Yeah, Hangman douche. I think we all agree on yeah, that. Yeah, right. douchebag. If he were if he were in our squadron, he would probably be plugged in as like Red Four for a couple of months to so, get him to to just knock him down a peg. Here's a perfect example. I, I'm not sure if you had retired yet, but when when we were in the 425th together, the Sings brought over this kid who was already a four ship flight lead, really young, super good, like had all the requisite skills, smart, good hands, like flew the jet very well. And he comes into the squadron, and, I mean, he was, ain't no fucking stink on me, right? And so I talked to Stealth, and I'm like, what's the deal with this cat? And Stealth's like, oh, you know, he's super early to everything. He'll probably go from here to weapon school. He's on the fast track. And so I had a sortie. I don't remember what it was, but there was something that I saw in a debrief with him, and he was just a total dick. And so I went to Stealth. And I go, I want you to put me on the schedule with him tomorrow, BFM. Let's see how good this fucking kid is. Mono and mono. Let's go see what happens. BFM is 1v1 dogfighting. Yeah. And so we go out there. So he comes up to me that, you know, before he comes into my office, he's like, sir, we're flying. I see we're flying tomorrow now. You know, what do you need me to do? I go, dude, you're going to lead it. You can... Build it however you want. You can be on all offense. You can be on all defense. We can do a mix of offense, defense, and high aspect. Whatever you want to do. I said, brief the motherhood. You can give me a brief of offense, defense, or high aspect, whichever one you, you, you think you know the best, and we can talk about your brief afterwards. And I said, and then we'll just go see what we do. Give me your best game. Right on. So we go up there, and dude, I fucking destroy this kid on every set. Even when I'm on defense, I'm crushing this kid's will to live. And not a dick about it. I was not a dick about it in any way. Not on the radios. When we get back in the debrief, the debrief was very professional and all that stuff. But it was just, he needed to know that he still had a lot to fucking learn. Yeah. Like I needed to break him down a notch because he had been in the squadron for a couple of weeks and I had seen it and I'd heard the grumblings a little bit. And so, yeah. So that's what I that's what I did with guys like that. Sometimes sometimes we need to get knocked down a peg. Yeah. And I'll share a I'll share a little secret with you. I was hangman for a long time. I was that cocky, my shit don't stink. I too had been propelled ahead of my peers and been told that I was the best for a long time. Guess how many friends I had yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. This is why. So I was in the on deck circle to go into the instructor upgrade as a lieutenant. Yeah. I had like 350 hours, or which something. is very rare. Very rare. But my commander saw exactly what you saw in this other kid. And he held me accountable to it, took me out of the on deck circle, and I never got back in. And it was 100% because of my attitude. 100%. So when I, when I sit here and I talk into this podcast about having been there and done that and lived through some of this shit. Yeah. Yeah, man. I could be sitting here with a patch on my arm too had I had a better attitude because I had the ability. I had the yeah, brains. Sure. Shit didn't work out. Now, looking back into it, hindsight 2020, I mean, I was I was grumpy for a long time. Yeah. And it still took me, after that, it still took me a couple of years to learn the lesson. Sure. But I still believe that everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. And I'm at peace with it now. There is a part of me that sometimes lays there and goes, what if? But I'm, I'm past that. I'm not looking in the rearview mirror anymore. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, the only thing I would say to that Roscoe too, is that some of the best instructors that I had in my career in the air force didn't have a patch on their shoulder. Well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't about that, but think about why I was driven to do that being in that position at that time. Yeah. You know, no, I understand. It goes back I was to my, there too. My, my discussion about being in the fraternity. Yeah. You know, I was there too. It was my value set it was all fucked up, Yeah, you know, and, and I had mentors at the time, some were decent, some were not decent. Yeah. And I chose to follow the not decent ones and I paid for it. Yeah. Thankfully, though, thankfully, I learned my lesson. At least I think I did, at least partly. And we're sitting here able to have this conversation. Yeah, and I just, let me hit on the mentor thing one thing real quick, because you don't you, you don't see this. I mean, there, there's a little bit of it in the movie, because Mav's kind of brought in to mentor these guys to be able to do this mission or whatever. But what I can fundamentally say is I may have had the raw talent and the requisite skills, but if I had not seeked out certain individuals a patchwork of mine named Frag Job when I was a young punk in uh, Korea. If I wouldn't have had a guy like him or a guy like Crusher Feeder who was a punk with me in Korea who held me accountable and we would do a bunch of stuff on the weekends to get better. A non-patch guy that taught me how to do seed suppression of enemy air defenses like nobody else could named Scary Sherry who was a reservist. You know, if I hadn't sought those guys out over and over and over again and asked the questions, made them go to the Sims with me, yeah. I would have, I wouldn't have gotten to where I was. So my point in saying that is like you said a million times. And like you said at the beginning of the podcast, it's not about being the best individual and hoorah, I'm the best, blah, 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 blah. Like you got to seek out the people that can help you get there. Yeah. And that's why mentorship is so important. Yeah. I think, I think there's so many, man, there's so many good stuff. This is going to be like a two hour episode. <laughs> There's so much good stuff to take away from here just in real life. And I know we're talking about a drama, but as you were sitting there talking, I was thinking, I just started reading this book called The Intentional Father. And his whole, like the whole intro is talking about, look, dads, your son may not always come to you and ask you to help him with something or help him through something. So you have to be proactive. And I think you and I both sitting here, we're able to look back into our past and go, man, we say it in the in the opening. This is the podcast that we wish we'd have had when we were young men. Yeah, I uh, we need we you and I our generation. We need to be proactive and go seek out yeah. these kids and help them because a lot of them don't they don't know what they don't know. Yeah, that's you, so true. You don't know what questions to ask, man. Yeah. And until I start poking a little bit, and you go, huh? I so know. we can't as a generation. I mean, you and I are are pushing a half a century here. But as a generation, we can't expect these younger kids to have it figured out. We have to go and help them, and we have to be proactive about it. You have to. Yeah. All right, so bar scene still. Yeah. All right, we just got introduced to Hangman. And in walk the a, other pilots. In, in walk a few more of the characters, which Phoenix is a really um, – Yeah, she was she's, cool. She's an interesting character she from a lady's – away. Yeah, a lady's point of view, like this quiet, cool, confident – if you're a, a woman aspiring to things, she's a great role model. Yeah, totally. I, I, thought, I thought the way she carried herself through the whole movie was spot on. Yeah, she was awesome. Just not, she was confident. You mm-hmm. could tell that she was very yeah. confident. And she's in, I mean, you and I, have in, in the fighter pilot community, it is largely male dominated. It is. So when a female walks in with that kind of confidence, that's hell yeah, man. Yeah. You can be part of my team anytime. Absolutely. So then we get introduced to Bob. What were your impressions about Bob? Yeah, I love Bob. Bob's cool. Yeah, Bob's my favorite. So I, what I would say about Bob is he's the silent professional. Yeah. He's patient. He's a listener. 
I think he's very confident in his abilities, and yep. obviously he executed very well. Yep, yep. Knows his role. Definitely a team player. Yeah, yep. knows his role, which is another thing that we teach guys in a fighter squadron is mm-hmm. know, your role know your role and never miss the opportunity to shut the fuck up. That's right. Sometimes you are to lead. Sometimes you are to follow. But one thing I noticed in that entire movie is everybody's bad mouth and hangman to each other. So the bar scene that we're talking about, right? Like mm-hmm. then Rooster walks in and Phoenix and him have a conversation. Oh, hangman, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And you kind of get this, you know, the impression that, okay, everybody knows this is hangman. This is yeah. just how he is. And nobody likes him. Yeah. Bob was the most courageous of all of them because outside of Rooster trying to pick a fight with him when he started talking about his dad... Bob's the only one that ever called him out in a formal setting. Exactly. He's the only one that stood up to the bully. That's right. When he's sitting there and he's like, well, he's going to pick the best men. You guys need to figure this out. And he looks at Phoenix and he makes some whatever misogynistic comment that he makes. And then Bob goes, oh, yeah, that's about standard, you know. And he starts, Bob's the only one in the entire movie, the entire time. Maverick didn't even do it. He's the only one that ever stood up to him. Now, I, I, I wrote down almost the same thing, man, about being just a quiet, cool. And I wrote down that he's very detail oriented. Yeah. And, and that went to both how he carried himself just in the, in that bar scene, even. And then all the way through to the mission execution, you could tell that, man, that guy was squared away. Yeah, he was, he was, he was squared away. And, and sometimes here's your, here's your life lesson, I guess, or at least from my point of view is you don't always have to swing the biggest stick. Nope. You can be a quiet, cool dude, man. You don't have to be the loudest guy in the room. That's right. And people say that uh, when you walk into a room, you should be fearful of the quiet guy because he's the one that's taking notes. Yeah, he's the one observing. He's catching everything. it all. Yep. And and when when the shit gets ready to go down, he's the one you got to look out for. That's right. So, anyways, I, I loved Bob I all did the too. way all the way up until the shirtless football scene, which we'll get to in a minute. He was the only dude out there with a shirt on. I, I mean, know, the chick didn't even have her shirt on. Come on, come on, Bob. And then Rooster. Rooster walks in. He's the last of the four that we'll kind of deep dive into. Rooster, I, I think that they tried really hard to make him appear to be very much like his dad, even though his dad wasn't in his life. Bob was the closer um, one to Goose in this movie, I, I think. I think so. I do. I think so. But in that bar scene, I think that they tried really hard to make it seem like, hey, he's a chip off the old block. Well, sure, with you the know, whole song and part everything. Part of his DNA. And yeah. I mean, he, so everybody else is in their uniform. He walks in with a Hawaiian shirt on and his Ray-Bans. Yeah. You know, so everything from that all the way up to the bar or the uh, the piano and, and all that good stuff. And But you could tell, just like Goose in the first movie, everybody liked Rooster. Except Hangman, maybe. Yeah. But everybody liked him. Yeah. You know, just like, kind of, oh, very similar to... To Goose's character. Yeah, Hangman probably didn't like him because he's so insecure. And he's, he's a threat. He was the only one he saw as a threat. Yeah, exactly. And maybe rightfully so. Maybe. You know, his ego had put up a barrier to where if he ever got found out, he had a chance to lose for maybe the first time. And uh, and it was probably going to be a big a big blow to him. Yeah. So anyway, so that's our team. So what do you, you want to talk about? You want to give me your thoughts on Rooster at all? I think Rooster's got some, he's got some, deep rooted issues and some, some daddy I, issues. I think he had, I don't know if it was a confidence thing or just a, um, he was conservative. He was very conservative in the way that he went about it. And I think it might've been a fear of failure. Yeah. I think that he was, was afraid to make a mistake. Yeah. I think, I think maybe a fear of failure was probably driving his conservatism, but it could have been some daddy issues. And he definitely harbored a lot of rage and anger towards Maverick for, towards Maverick. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So he's that, to me, if we go back to the fighter squadron example, you know, he's that very competent, capable poor ship flight leader IP who just lacks that aggressive edge, you know, because he was, he was conservative. He was afraid to make a mistake. He's afraid to push it up. 
at the same time, I mean, he's a weapon school grad. He is. I mean, he's obviously done he's some obviously things right. It, yep. You know, he, and you don't get there by being a, a chucklehead. Well, it was funny because you know? he would sacrifice to save team, but he wouldn't push to win. You know, so yeah. there's that whole scene where, you know, he, Maverick's about to shoot down Phoenix and Bob on the BFM, which is why they're fighting BFM when they're fucking Top Gun grads, whatever. Yeah. But it's great cinematography. Yeah. You know, and he does whatever the move is that ends up getting him shot down first that gets Maverick off of mm-hmm. Phoenix and Bob or whatever. But then he won't, he won't push the power up in the, in the valley, in the low level yeah. to, to stay on time. Yeah. I'll blow through the hard deck down to 500 feet. Yeah. But, and almost, yeah. and almost dirt my fucking self, yeah. but I won't go above 420 knots on a low level. How much of that's Hollywood it's versus movie. real life? I know, I it's I, movie, but, but, but no, I mean, but there's whatever. some, there, some of that's valid though. I mean, cause I mean, I've known guys who were, like super aggressive on some missions, yeah. but then you put them in other missions and they're yeah, very it's a timid, comfort level for know? some guys. Right. Yeah. And what I used to always tell guys in the squadron was you got to find that balance. It's, it goes back to balance. Right? You got to find that balance. Cause if you're just wild dingo and you're the aggressive hangman, you know, that's always pushing forward. Fuck it. Bonsai. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Yeah. You're going to win sometimes, but you're also going to get your ass completely handed to you sometimes too. Yeah. Right. And some of that's a learning process with the younger guys. Like you've said in previous podcasts, mm-hmm. I'd rather make you make the wrong decision aggressively than yeah. sit there and make no decision at all. But you got to find a way to temper it. You got to know when to go for the throat and when you need to give it one more leaf. There's there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely good valid, valid points in that for sure. I think he would have probably, he would have found a good role as like an FTU. IP. Yeah, probably. probably. You know, not maybe Same not a thing every day. Yeah. Maybe yeah. not a calf IP. Like I'll, I'll teach you TR one yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. You know, we'll, we'll figure out how to put the gear up together. Sure. All right, um, let's move on. Yeah. So there's a, uh, there's a line at the end of the bar scene there where they're talking about, well, what kind of mission is this that they pulled us all? Like these are the, we're the best of the best, you know, whatever. What kind of mission is this? That they brought us all back. And Phoenix says, Hey, you guys are asking the wrong questions. The question is, we're the best. Who are they going to find to teach us? And I like dropped my pen. Holy shit. Aside from that comment, she was a really good character. Yeah. But that one, I wanted to punch her in the face. Yeah. Holy crap, man. I'm going to, I'm going to let you speak to this. The mantra for weapon school is humble, approachable, credible bingo. If you're standing in a room asking that question, yeah, then you did not learn shit. You did not learn that. I don't know what top guns mantra is, but yeah, the, mantra for the weapon school was humble, approachable, credible, because when you graduate from weapon school, you're the chief instructor in a squadron. You go back to a squadron as the patch, the chief instructor pilot in the squadron, and it's your job to teach. And not and it's to teach the instructors and all the other guys in the squadron. You can't do that if you're a hangman or, you know, if you're super ego-driven. If you're not humble, first of all, the humility piece is important because there's a lot riding like people expect a high level of performance of out of you every day as a patchware, but guess what? We're human and we fuck up too. Right. And mm-hmm. so part of the, part of the humility is when you screw up something in the debrief, point it out and let yeah. guys know that, Hey, we all make mistakes and it's okay. And this is something we can all learn from. Um, but it's also not being an ego driven asshole like hangman is because if you're, if you're like that, who's going to come ask you a question? Yeah. Like nobody's going to want to approach you. That goes into approachability a little bit too. Right. Then you want to be approachable, right? You can't be a dick. If there's no stupid question, you've got to be open. Because guys, everybody learns at a different level. Everybody learns at a different pace. And everybody learns in different ways, right? And you're supposed to be the guy that they can come to Mm -hmm. and ask whatever question they have about things. 
And, you know, if you're, I remember when I, I remember a weapons officer of mine one time just completely berating one of my B course student, a B course student that I was in the B course with because he didn't understand they were getting ready for a turkey shoot and they were trying to do the coefficients on the jets to make the bombs drop better is basically all that means. And one of the students didn't understand how to do it. And he went and asked the patch about it and the patch lost his shit. Like, yeah. I don't have time for this. I can't believe you don't. And it's like, dude, he's he's never seen it before. How would he know, right? So don't be that that guy. And then credible. You got to be good at what you do. So you got to have a certain level of credibility. Like you can't you can't go out there and get your ass handed to you every day. Or guess what? Nobody's going to listen to you. You can't yeah. suck when you fly. You've got to every you have to strive for excellence in everything you do, whether that's going out to the range, dropping on the range, air to air. I mean, everything. The briefs, the debriefs. Yep. It has to be top-notch, high-quality all the time, every time. Yeah, I, re- I read this book the other day. It's called Flying in the, in the Wind by Dan Rooney, and he said, he had a, a line in there, and I'm probably going to misquote it, so if you're listening, please don't hold this against me, but he says, flying fighters is like driving a race car, playing Call of Duty, playing a guitar, and being on a radio talk show all at the same time. Yeah, it's true. And th- just the level of multitasking that we asked these kids to do. I mean, I look, I look at what they're doing nowadays and I'm like, oh God, man, I, I can't believe that we used to do that day in and day out and no questions. Yeah. It's like, this is just what's expected of you. Yeah. And I mean, the, and the training pipeline is so long and it's so, it's so spoon fed and methodical that it's no surprise that by the end of the training course, these, these kids are at that level. But when they get there and they start in their first few times getting in the cockpit, you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like this is, this is a mountain to climb. And we, I mean, by the end of our careers, we're just like, we're on cruise control. It's like, oh, yeah. you know, it's like, you just don't even think about it. Nope. You, know, you get the keys for your office. jet and it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like no big deal. And yeah. that's what, you know, we were kind of joking in the beginning of podcast about, you know, planning this mission up in just, yeah. just a few hours, yeah. you know, like they're making this big deal out of it. Well, if you're the best in the fucking world, man, you should be able to like, cool, just give me my coffee filter lineup card. Let's go. Yeah. You know? Anyways, the, the next scene in the movie is really them getting introduced to what the, what the mission is, yeah. you know, and, and they go into this big thing about, well, these Sams are lethal and you're going to have to fly in at a hundred feet and you're going to pull nine times the force of gravity. Yeah. All right. Motherfuckers. Cool guy story here. So I was a strike eagle dude for a lot of years and the strike eagle, like all of us that wear G suits, we have to go through this centrifuge. Yep. Well, the strike eagle, while it can pull nine G's, it's for a split second. The one thing the Strike Eagle does very well is lose energy. Yeah, it bleeds right? energy fast. So we can get nine Gs for about 0.69 seconds, and then we're falling out of the sky. So for that reason, when we went to the centrifuge, we didn't have to do the 9G oh, profile. We yeah. did the 7.5G profile, yeah. right? And we touched nine for just a second, and then back down to 7.5 for like, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds, whatever it was. Well, when I came down here mm-hmm. and had to get into a Viper, yep. I was like, oh, this is a real 9G jet. It is. I'm 40 fucking years old, and they sent me back to the centrifuge. I'm in the centrifuge. This is a true story. I'm in the centrifuge with two guys, two lieutenants that just got out of UPT, and they're like 24 years old. Same for me. I was a lieutenant colonel coming off the staff, and they sent me back to the centrifuge. (laughs) Yeah, so I... When we get our website up and running, I'm going to put that video up there of me in the centrifuge at 40 years old. My face is like melting off my face, and I made it. I don't... Because it's nine Gs for 15 seconds on the yeah. F-16 profile. Luckily, luckily, they let me wear the A-tags. Yeah, I, the I didn't have the old shitty five-bladder, but they, they made those kids wear the five-bladder, the old ones. 
but had it not been for the ATAGs, I probably, ATAGs <laughs> is like a, it looks like snow pants. Yeah. All right. They're like it's big fat snow pants. It's really good. But had it not been for that, now I'm, I'm not going to confirm or deny that I saw the dot the entire 40 seconds. Sure. But I know how to play the game and I can grit and I can grunt, keep my eyes open yeah. and keep pulling back on that damn stick. Have any light loss? And, no. And yeah, <laughs> you know the answers yeah. to the test by now, right? <laughs> so, but yeah, your 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 spine is going to be crushed, and the wind is going to be sucked out of your yeah, lungs. Yeah, it's like and, an elephant sitting on yeah. your chest, dude. I used to talk to guys flying defense over eight G's. Seriously, I'm t- looking over my shoulder, pulling eight and a half G's, going, "Yeah, don't pull yet. You know, you yeah. don't set your lift vector yet, not yet, yeah. or your nope." Let it look at whatever. There's, there's tolerance that gets yeah. built up for sure. And, you know, if you ever get a chance to take a long block of leave or maybe your PCS or something like that, and you're out of the jet for maybe a month or a little bit more, the first ride, it's like, oh, okay. Because, you you know, there's a lot of muscles involved in this. Yeah, the worst that, for me was always coming back was getting jeezles, uh, which is uh, basically like it looks like a rash that you get for the listeners out there because your body's not used to the G's anymore. And what happens is a bunch of the capillaries on the – first couple layers of skin pop and so you get all these red dots all over you it's a rite of passage and and i think that again we, you know by the end of it we just got so used to that stuff yeah. that it's like eh, yeah. whatever i mean you this, don't even feel your g-suit anymore yeah these kids are i mean all those guys in that movie they're kids they're probably late 20s yep. early 30s and all of them are in really good shape yep they, they don't have any problems no they don't have any problems with this and they're weapon school instructors so they probably do this every day. Yep. I mean, in 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 a real fighter squadron, you're going out and pulling G's. Even on a benign sortie, you're six plus all the time. All the time. The pitch out from the from coming up initials a four G pull. It is. I mean, it's if you're not, doing it yeah. right. Anyways, it's not a big deal. They get into trying to figure out how to fly this low level on time, and and this whole it's a long drawn out process. Again, they got. Three weeks to figure out how to fly through a canyon. Yeah, for in um, two and a half minutes. Good God, man. We used yeah. to fly through the Bruno Canyon on the way home from uh, the Mountain Home Range. You'd be down in the southern part of the range, and the Bruno Canyon is, I mean, it's a fairly deep. You can get down in it and still be 500 feet above the floor, which was uh, our last at limits for a long time. You can still be 500 feet and have canyon walls on both sides of yeah. it. And we did that routinely. Yeah. Like, we would purposely pick targets in the south part of the airspace so that we could run the canyon on the back, way home. On the way home. So, anyways, so they're figuring out how to do this, and they're figuring out how to do it in this specified amount of time, which I believe in the beginning was three minutes. It's just two and a half or three. Two I don't remember. Okay. Where I want to where I want to pick this up is where the admiral he fires Maverick. Mm-hmm. All right. So kind of a body blow to him. This is after a lot of ice. Yeah, and, ice you know, dies. Ice dies, and and there's a lot of I don't know good discussion in there between ice and Maverick and how they've just become really good friends and whatnot, but. The admiral comes in, and something that stood out to me is he lowered the standard. He bumped it up to four minutes. Yep. And man, I put an asterisk beside that when I wrote it down. And if I could, if I could give the listeners a piece of advice around that kind of metaphor, it would be: don't ever expect someone to lower the standard. There's no easy buttons in life. Like this stuff doesn't happen, yeah. right? And and when you when you lower the standard for whatever it is, I mean, we're talking, we're talking from the perspective of being part of what I would call elite teams mm-hmm. for several years. When you lower that standard, what are you really doing? You're minimizing or marginalizing your capabilities and you're accepting mediocrity. Yeah, that's what you're end. doing. 
And that's, that's the issue because mediocrity can't live in an environment like that because it's going to get people killed and people killed fast. That's right. We went through this in back in about 2010, we were talking about having females become part of the tactical air control party. And I think across the community at the time, we didn't care. I, I was, I was there, I was doing the air liaison officer gig at uh, Fort Campbell with the 101st. And I don't think any one of us cared about the female piece of it. Like that yeah. wasn't the thing, but it was the, the point was, is they were going to try to lower the standards to allow or, or create new standards for the females. And for example, if the males had to do 60 push ups, the females would only have to do 40. And we're like, uh, uh-uh, hard stop dude. Because if I'm in a foxhole getting shot at, I need to know that that person could pull me out. Yeah. And 40 push-ups might not be able to. Right. But 60 can. You yeah. know, and, and that's where that's where we kind of drew the line. As far as being in a locker room with a chick, nobody cared. Yeah. That was that wasn't even a discussion point. Yeah. If if the chick can come in and run a run a five minute mile and do hundred push ups, hell yeah, let's go. Yeah. I think we see the same thing in the fighter pilot community. Yeah, you do. And and you see it in different variations. So like I remember when I came back to the 62nd as a weapons officer after weapons school as you're taking guys through the basic course, there's benchmarks that they have to make. And I was trying to get all the instructors on the same sheet of music as to kind of what the standard of performance was for different rides. Because what's really unfair to students when they're going through the course is when they go, Oh, I'm flying with Roscoe today. I got this made. I don't, all I have to do is not hit it, but I'm going to pass. Yeah. Cause it's not a demo prof ride, a de- be, demonstrate be a proficiency ride. Santa Claus. Or they're flying with yeah. Cass and they're, they're like, Oh man, if I screw up anything, I'm going to get busted, you know? And so, and I had one, I, I had a cut, not one, I had a couple of IPs are like, cause I was like, so they have four offensive BFM rides. Mm-hmm. BFM four is demo pro. And I'm like, dude, if they can't find a turn circle entry on BFM three, bust them. Cause they're not going to find it on their demonstrate proficiency ride. And now yeah. you're just setting them up for failure because all the demo pro rides counted towards DG and all that. There was the points that were associated with performance and I had a couple IPs that are like, well, we can't do that. It's not a demonstrate proficiency ride, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, but what good are you doing? You're just, you're accepting mediocrity and sending a kid who's not prepared for his demonstrate proficiency ride and expecting him to demonstrate proficiency. It makes no fucking sense, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> Well, there's, there is a, there's a fine line there with what you can fix in a debrief and what you can't. Yeah. And if the guy can't see that picture, you're not going to fix that in a debrief. Yeah. You know, he's got to go out and actually see it at 500 miles an hour. Yeah. And when you give a kid a chance to, to fix things before the demonstrate proficiency ride, they typically do better because yeah. it's not as stressful as an event. But when you're at the last ride in a phase and now you've busted it once and then now you've busted it twice, like the, the amount of pressure that they put on mm-hmm. themselves is like 10 times more because it's a demo pro ride. So when I was, Going through my instructor upgrade, I finally passed DCA, defensive counter air, which is basically we're protecting a target from the hordes of bad guys. Belt fed red air from the West, and we're protecting the BX and mom and the kids. That grade sheet that I finally passed, it had four X's on it. I'd busted that ride four times before I finally it it was so bad that I grabbed a, a bro of mine, who's an older patch, and I pulled him into my office and I was like, hey man should I be worried about this? He says, has the commander talked to you yet? No. Then, then just press. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I was trying really hard, but it was like little slip ups sure. in the debrief or, or yeah. little slip ups in execution, you know, and, I and hard. 
our our patch at the time, there was no margin of error. Yeah. It was and and rightfully so. I mean, he held he had a standard and and he held the standard, and I'm not arguing that. But man, it was demoralizing. Yeah, it to is. see four X's on the fucking grade sheet. Sure, like standing up in front of the in in front of the group. You know, you're briefing a strike eagle flight. Two people per cockpit, four cockpits. So eight people in the room. It's sweaty. It's hot. And I'm supposed to brief these guys on how to go execute this mission. And all of them have copies of my grade sheet going, uh-uh, motherfucker, you don't know yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> so, yeah, it was yeah, it was, it was humbling. Yeah, and then the last point that I'd make on the, the standards thing is even if, the, even if the organization, the people, whatever the case is around you have lowered a standard, don't lower yours. Like, keep your personal standard high. Yeah. So if you want to shine on an organization, that's how you do it. Yeah, I, uh, I, I listen to a few... I have a, a list of podcasts I listen to, and one of them that I talk to, Andy Frisella and his uh, Real AF podcast, he always talks about personal excellence is the ultimate rebellion. And uh, just like you said, man, you want to stand out and and be that that lone wildebeest over here doing your own thing, man. Personal excellence is the way to go, dude. Yep, it is. This is this is why you keep your mind and your body and your soul tight and in balance. And if everybody else is jumping off the bridge, dude, you ain't got to jump off that bridge, man. Yep. Keep your shit together. March to the beat of your own drum, bro. Because eventually, this is this goes back to our mission statement for the podcast, right? Yep. Eventually, those other people's gonna they're gonna see what you're doing. That's right, and you're gonna inspire them to change. Well, and that's why it's important to define values because if you know who you are and what you're about, you're gonna make good decisions around those things. Bingo, man! We're tying all this crap together like a big O knot. All right. So more on the mission, you know. Then they so they finally get to where they can half ass fly uh, down the canyon. And then they're talking about this pop over the mountain. Okay, so in the movie, the target is in the middle of a fucking volcano. Yeah. It's it's a mountain on either side with surface-to-air missiles all around it. And this is what I giggled out loud when uh, when they, they initially pitched the mission to Maverick. And he says, well, you know, on an ordinary day, uh, F-35s would go in there and they just, you know, slay the beast. And yeah. this would be no big deal. But, oh, there's GPS jamming. Yeah, like, I know, right? Bro. Whatever. Bro. We we got this. All right. We got this. We trained to this. We got Maybe this. there's a reason Mav wasn't at Top Gun anymore. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. He's a dinosaur. He's he's kinda out of the loop. So anyways, they're trying to figure out this uh this pop and then they go into this discussion about, ooh, we gotta pull we gotta pull nine G's up out of this canyon. Yeah. Well Scary. the the F eighteen's only rated to seven point five. Well, guess what, dude? You ain't pulling nine. Yeah. All right. If it's rated to eight or to seven point five, that's it. Yeah. It's not like, I mean, to a degree, now the, the flight control mechanisms in the F-18 are different than what we're used yeah, to. Yeah, I don't know the, if they have the same. Theirs is, it's a McDonnell Douglas jet, so it's very close to what the Strike Eagle does. I mean, that jet, the guts of that jet are very, almost Similar. identical to what the uh, what the Strike Eagle is. So I'm a little bit familiar. It's hydromechanical, electrical. And to a degree, you can drive the stabs down and, and get G that you might not have known was there. If you're in the right envelope at the right altitudes and the right, you know, right air and and things like that. But eventually the computers are going to go, uh-uh, dude. We used to teach guys for a BFM turn circle entry to roll, set, pull, and try to pull the top of the stick off because that's where the stick force sensor at the bottom of the, of the control stick, that electronic signal gets sent down to the computers that might give you a little, like maybe 0.1 extra. And that's where we would tell guys to just grab the top of the stick and try to pull it off so to speak, but not in the F-16, but fly by wire is a little bit different. Yeah. But in the F-18, you might get, you might get a couple of bumps yeah. out of it, but you ain't going to 12. Not, <laughs> not that. I mean, that jet, 
if you were able to fly that jet home, yeah, it'd be so it, bent that that jet's going on a stick yep. somewhere at the front of some base. Yeah, it's got cracks you in know? the laundrons. It's yep. done. It's going to have some admiral's name on the side of it, and uh, and it's done. You you killed it. And then there's this there there's this like epic scene. I loved the scene for for the instructional point, but this would have never happened where Maverick steals the F eighteen. Oh yeah, steals the F eighteen and he goes out and he makes the run. Yeah. Right? He does it in 214. I yep. think he, he set the clock for 215. He makes it in 214. All right, great. Well, he did two things there. One, he proved to the guys that it could be done. Yep. Stop your fucking bitching. Stop your whining and let's figure out a way to fix this. Yep. There's a solution to this problem. We just have to find it. Yep. And if your execution's not up to that level, then we just need to practice, man. Speed will come. Yep. Practice on getting it right and then speed will come. The other thing that he did was, ironically, he proved that it could be done single seat, single jet, so why the fuck are we sending four? Yeah. Well, so, right. So Maverick is the greatest fighter pilot that's ever lived. Yeah. Am I wrong? Well, well that, no, but the, that like, that's the point, right? Maverick's the greatest fighter pilot that ever lived, but he needs Bob to lace his bombs in for him on the attack run. True. When he's already proven that he can do it by himself. That's the lamest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> as a single seat F-16 driver. <laughs> yeah. I do not need you lazing in my bombs. I can do it on my own just fine. There, there's definitely a time and a place and coming from a guy who's uh, two place cockpit, two guys operating at 80% efficiency are going to outperform one guy operating at a hundred almost all of the time. And if you got two guys in a, in a strike equal cockpit that are, that are hitting on all eight and there's a clear division of duties and everybody is knowing their role and executing their role at a high level, we're going to outperform a single seat jet just from an overwhelming standpoint and the ability to process information. That's I can understand maybe the process piece to a certain extent, yeah. although I did a lot of pretty heavy seed and deed work in yeah. my day, controlling not just a four ship, but an entire seed package yeah. of 12 or 16 jets and keeping track of yeah. where all the strikers are. So, But there's, yeah. probably some, there's probably some truth to that. Well, there's a reason that maybe. you're sitting over here telling these stories and maybe some other people weren't operating at that level. That's true. I can tell you that uh, some of my best sorties were the ones where there were not a lot of words said in the cockpit. It was just silent execution. Yeah. You know your role. I know my role. We're going to high five on the ramp at the end of this. We killed everybody. We shacked our targets and maybe five words were said inside the cockpit. But that's just from an efficiency standpoint for the mission that they were doing so much, so much wrong with the way it was planned, how it was flown. That's yeah, Hollywood. Um, so much wrong with all yeah. that. But I think at the end, you know, when they when they actually drop in and they start flying, I mean, obviously Rooster has this, you know, he has his, his, his coming out. Moment, yeah, yeah. He, he has his coming out party there in the middle of the thing and, and uh Maverick has his little proud dad moment and then and then he gets to go have his savior complex, you know, by taking the missile and all that. But across the board what well, I mean, before they even took off, what did you think about the selection of Rooster over Hangman? He kind of saw it coming. But. Yeah, well, I mean, again, Hollywood. So, real world, based on execution, I think Hangman probably would have been picked for that spot just because you knew he was probably going to execute the game plan to a higher level than Rooster was. You know, the only negative to, to Hangman was just the team piece of it. But, I mean, fuck, you're just a four-ship. What does it matter at that point for what you're doing? I mean, it's a low level to drop bombs and then... yeah. Run like hell to get out. He would have flown in as number three. Yeah. So and, and he, he would wasn't in charge anyway. So he would have executed um, no questions asked. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's what I think about it. But yeah. 
it's not doesn't fit the storyline. Valid. I, I I thought the same things. I thought from you know if I were a squadron commander, if I were a flight lead in charge of picking my own flight, it would have been Hangman. And that's that's just from a execution standpoint. I definitely would have picked Phoenix and Bob though. Oh, 100%. Yeah. They kicked ass. They were they, awesome. Um when they punched out, you know guys that have punched out of jets. Yeah. How long was it before they got back to flying? Oh, months typically cuz usually yeah. depending on the nature of why, I mean it just depended depending on the nature of why they punched out. Sometimes there was an a uh, flight evaluation board that took place afterwards, mm-hmm. you know, to see if there was any fault. But it was at least a few weeks, you yeah. know, for guys that punched. So um, the realism of them going on that mission is probably no. It's not going to happen. It's slow. Yeah. You punch out of a jet, you're going to be sitting soft yep. or top three for a you're little be sitting bit. for a bit. Yep. Yeah. I totally forgot that that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, was, I did a little bit of research yesterday just looking up some stuff. And one, one cool thing that I read was that the body can sustain up to 46 Gs mm-hmm. in small doses. Now, I don't know how they got this data. Yeah. But I thought that was kind of interesting. And then by small doses, I mean like microseconds probably. Yeah. Everything starts to turn to goo inside otherwise. Yeah. Well, and then the other the other piece that, that I was reading about was how many ejections have there been over the mock? And and I uh, I remember being told this story when I was going through the I don't know, but I wouldn't want to be over the mock punching out, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, they told the story when I was in the B course. Yeah. And uh, the there was injuries. There was a strike eagle uh, crew that ejected over the whiskey areas east of North Carolina and they were above the mock. And the Wizzo died. The pilot broke almost every bone in his arms and legs, yet somehow was able to drag his ass. I think he had like one half of one good arm and was able to get himself inside of his raft, and he survived. And um, and he told the story about it and how he just, you know, it was like as soon as you, as soon as the canopy came off, his helmet went with it. It was like, I mean, just that, it's like hitting a brick wall. Yeah. And I well, was... Uh, I like was, an F5 tornado or even like a whatever... What's the highest hurricane? They're only like 200 yeah. miles an hour. Yeah. You know, if you're over the mock, man, you're doing like... <laughs> you're doing six bills. You're over 600 easy. miles an hour yeah. easy, yeah. depending on the altitude. Yeah, for sure. And then, I mean, well, with altitude, that just complicates things. Yeah. Because now, not only do you have flailing injuries, it's fucking cold, man. And if your helmet gets ripped off and there's no oxygen at altitude... Boom. That's a mistake. That yeah. that, that could be a bummer, too. Your eyeballs freeze, your nose hairs freeze. I mean, yeah. So, nothing good happening there. But I was reading in a couple of these forums about ejecting over the mock, and, and one person just came right out and said, hey, could Maverick have really punched out at, at what was he, 10.4, I think, at oh, the end, hell something no. like that? And Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's uh, he answered in the forum. I thought this was great. He answered in the forum, and he goes, uh, no. Yeah. His, his body would have been like a bug splat. Yeah, it would have. Like hitting a wall of air like that yeah. at that speed. Would have no. ripped him to pieces. No. You're, yeah. You're you're just uh, you're just a wad of goo at the end of that. So Maverick gets his little savior complex and he goes down, and then Rooster has to turn around and have one of his own. So you you take a guy who could barely fight BFM, wouldn't push it up in the canyon runs, and now all of a sudden he's going back into the super mez to take one for the team against all go, the Sues and go find and his Sam's. quote unquote daddy. Yeah, I thought that was a little it's well Hollywood. True, but that guy would probably never fly a jet again. Nope. Uh, if if he did that in the real world, he'd never fly a jet Not again. With the three star on the deck yep. saying RTB, bring him home. Yeah, there's no way, man. You'd be yep. done. He's done. So they're on the ground. They had this cool little exchange about oh, you told me not to think. Yeah. Okay. 
And then they go steal the F-14, yeah. which was badass. Yeah. That was, I mean, aside from the fact that it would have never, ever, ever happened. Or flown. It was so, <laughs> it was so cool. Um, just the idea that, that they're just like, yeah, fuck it. We got nothing else to lose. Yeah. Like, we're going to freeze to death out here. Let's go try to steal the Tomcat, you know? Yeah. Well, that was pretty cool. Didn't follow any of their survive, evade, resist, <laughs> escape protocols or any of their comm protocols. Like none, nothing. None. Let's go yeah. to the, the closest enemy base yep. and steal an airplane. Yeah. And they had this, they had this, like this, they stare each other down and they're like, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I know. Oh, let's go steal a jet. Sounds like a great idea. Yeah. So do you know how to work the maintenance carts out on the line? A couple of them. Yeah. Yeah. But only because of deployed ops and only because I tried to make it a point to spend time and hang out with my maintenance guys. Mm -hmm. I could have probably gotten through it. It would have taken me a lot longer than 30 seconds. Yeah. I could have, I could have started an air cart. I'd have no idea what pressure it would need to be to fire off the motor. The only reason that I would have known even where to start is because I was a crew chief for eight years. Yeah. And I'm kind of familiar with how those things work and I, you know, at least I can, I don't know, recognize the language on it. Cause it's not intuitive. It's not like, and you know, for the listeners, you don't get a set of keys and walk out to your F 16 and go, no. you know, yeah. no, there's a million switches that you got to do and there's timing and there's a certain sequence of events. And if you don't know that sequence, then the shit ain't gonna work. Yep. You know, and those it's maintenance carts, those maintenance carts aren't any different yet. Maverick not only knew it, but he could communicate it to rooster in 20 seconds and he executed flawlessly. Yeah. Not one single hiccup. Yeah. With that. After not flying it I for need you 20 to crank years. this and give me power to that and then pull all the pins and then put the ladder up and then get in the jet. Yeah. Most guys wouldn't know how to pull all the pins in their jet either. Probably. Seriously. I mean, how many times yeah. do you have to teach a young guy in a cross country? <laughs> yeah. You know, when you're pull going your to a flag, but you don't have tankers. And so yeah. you land somewhere and you're like, all right, dude. Let me walk you around the jet. <laughs> this is what we need to check. This is yeah. what we got to pull. That was a bit of comedy. And then and then pile onto it. So they both finally get in the cockpit. Rail's clear. Okay, canopy comes down. And miraculously, in 2022, this movie came out in 22, the harnesses that they were wearing matched up perfectly with the Rogue Nation F-14 ejection seat. Yeah. And so, clip, clip, now we're in the jet. Yeah. Like Awesome possum. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't know what... I don't know what ejection seats were in the F-14. I don't either. The F-18s were Aces 2 seats. So just so you guys know, when we fly, we put harnesses on. And because the parachute's actually packed in the seat. And so you have basically the riser straps come over your shoulders. And you click them into your harness before you take off. So that if you have to eject, you're you're attached to the parachute in the seat. That's what Roscoe is talking about. Yeah. I was happy to see that when they had that scene of Maverick laying there in the snow, kind of waking up from his ejection, at least he had his mask down and his visor up. So that was, a, I mean, what was it? A canopy visor mask. C-Kid-O-P-U, C-Kid, four-line prepare four land. Four-line land. Yeah. How did he do it, though, if he was unconscious? Well, was he unconscious from the crash landing in the snow or the getting shot down from the jet? These are questions we'll just never know. I guess, I guess that's I true. Know. There are a lot of guys that black out on ejection because mm-hmm. it's like 26 instantaneous Gs when you pull the handles. And so they go out. But they usually wake up in the in the shoot. Yeah. Well, it's just lack of oxygen in the brain, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Not unlike uh, pulling nine Gs for a sustained period. If you don't get on your G strain. Yeah, that's very true. This is how we lose kids just graying out. And yep. they're augering in a perfect, perfectly good jet because they didn't squeeze their ass cheeks. Yep. You know, it's something that simple. There's so much technique that goes into that. 
All right, so they steal the F-14, and then they've got to fight the big bad Su-57 fifth-gen fighters, who also are not affected by the GPS jamming, surprisingly. Not that an F-35 could have done any better. It, too, like a strike eagle, it likes to lose energy and fall to the dirt. But good good jazz planning by a uh, joint engagement zone planning by yeah. a foreign country, too. Yeah. They're usually not that good at that. How'd that deconfliction yeah. go? I wonder. They're usually not that good at that kind of deconfliction. Yeah. That's, That's awesome. They didn't understand the hand signals with each other, and then Maverick just pulls some of that pilot shit out of his ass and shoots down a couple of them. That was that was pretty neat. The um, I thought that was pretty neat when they they were saddling up on the one, and he does that like flat plate. Yeah, just, where he pulled the he split the power on the motors and kicked the rudder. Well, the and yeah, and the Su twenty seven or the Su fifty seven. Oh, that just, one. Yeah, he just stops like this, yeah. and you can see the the vort. Um, the vapor trails coming off yep. the wings and that big, that big puffy marshmallow cloud around it. And all you ever that. fought the F 22. Yeah. yeah. That's where I was going to go similar. with this. It's yeah. like we started out, they got a Tennessee axis capability uh, again, strike eagles fall to the dirt. That's what they do. Good. And so we would start off six K offensive and within about 120 degrees, we're defensive. Yeah. Terminate, set up another, yeah. like those guys, there's a, there's a significant amount of, maneuverability yes in those jets. especially with the thrust vectoring and stuff too it's actually yeah. more just their z-axis capability than it is the vectoring from what i understand but yeah yeah i don't know it's impressive there's a uh just go up <laughs> well you couldn't go up in the, F- in the strike but not well we could but just the fiber i just go up you know where we made a lot of money was get you guys into the control zone and then kind of do the put on the brakes and he'll fly right by kind of thing. Yeah. We just flat plate it and we could ho- we would hope that we could get you into a tree fight. A stack. And if we could get you into a tree fight, then we could lose energy better than you, spit you out front and do either a pirouette or yeah. a raking gunshot or something yeah. like that. That was that was really the only hope that we had out of a uh, superior turning adversary. I loved it when you guys flat plated because I think my highest was 53 frames. <laughs> yeah. It's a tennis court, man. <laughs> it's a it's a big old dark gray tennis court. All right. So we steal the thing and then uh, Hangman comes in and blows up the last dude. That was pretty awesome. Yeah, he got his little piece. He's going to get an air medal out of it. But then he flies right through the fucking wreckage. I know. And he fought it out both of his motors. Now he's ejecting over the yeah, ocean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. Hollywood. Uh, never would have happened. Nope. All right. Never would have happened. And then we get back on the deck, and and everybody's friends. Bob and Phoenix are—I don't even remember seeing them in the closing, in the closing scene. Yeah, but they were heroes. You know, yeah, they totally. lazed in, they lazed in the bombs and yep, blowed the thing up. Maverick closes it out with a big old big old bro hug with Rooster, and it looks like they kissed and made up finally. And then of course you got that Maverick Iceman. Now it's Rooster and Hangman. Hey, you can be my wingman anytime. Yeah, kind of thing. So who learned what through the course of the movie? What did Maverick learn either about himself or about his boys? You know, what what was his big character arc? What was his big takeaway from the whole thing? If I was going to wager a guess, I would say that from what we were talking about previously, the way that I see it was Maverick's identity was completely wrapped up in being a fighter pilot. Mm-hmm. So, he, he said as much. Yeah. yeah. I'm a fighter pilot. I'm not an instructor. That's right. Okay, whatever. Yeah. And that's what led to, I think, you know, the ego, the loner, the rules don't apply to me. I don't have any accountability. Or if accountability is placed on me, I'm going to push back hard mm-hmm. kind of a thing. And I think at the end of it, what he realized, you know, whether it was 
the professional piece with Rooster and executing the mission or even the personal piece with the whoever the gal is that's the love interest in it. You oh, know, and Annie Benjamin. Sw- swinging back around to that, yeah. right? That there's more to life than just yeah. being a fighter pilot, right? Yeah. It was, it was more about letting go of those things. So, because we've talked about this on the podcast too, right? What are the messages that you've received in your life so mm-hmm. far? Because Maverick always had the chip on his shoulder, right? Like he yep. wasn't good enough. That was the message that he always getting. He was never going to be good enough because of who his daddy was. And yep. then he lost Goose and he wasn't good enough. And so there's that constant message that he's gotten his entire life that he never really overcame, which is probably why he was a complete dick most of the time. And then he also recognized, you know, he even says in the movie at one point, you know, I, I wish I would have handled that relationship. I tried to be the father to him that he didn't have after Goose died. And I yeah. wish I would have done a better job. And so I think what it is at the end is he's recognized these regrets that he's had in his life, mostly driven by his fucked up ego. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a, he's starting to shift away from that finally. There was a scene in the middle of the movie that I think was kind of his turning point, And that was when they were doing the shirtless football, which by the way, man, there's nothing like a good shirtless volleyball on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, I, I know you probably did that a lot. I know I did. I would always go in and get my dog oh, all the tags. time. Yeah. Now, now, were you the guy? Did you wear your blue jeans or were you a sweatpants guy? No, I like the runner shorts. Oh, okay. You like know the, the high ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah Ranger yeah, okay. panties were my yeah. favorite. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a. That's just a good way to kill time and, yeah. and you know really build some good team camaraderie, some shirtless. Because I was never sleeping off a hangover on Saturday morning yeah. after Friday night at the O no, Club. God no, man, or roll call or something. No, yeah, nothing. But at the end of the. During the football scene, right? He's going, hey, we're doing dogfight football, which was kind of a cool concept. But he walks away from the game. You know, he scored his touchdown. Yeah. Right? Great. But he walks away from the game, and he's sitting in his chair, and he's just got this ear-to-ear grin. And I, I couldn't help but sit there and think, I was like, that is a proud dad moment right there. Yeah. That you could tell that he was just enjoying watching the kids play. Yeah. And I know I've been there, man. I Like, if I, shit, I did this last Friday night I went out and played basketball with all the boys and there was a, a couple of times where I, I we had this uh this Mexican kid out there playing with us, does, doesn't speak English he works with Nikki and I was just having to tap him on the shoulder and point to a guy to get him to go play defense like he didn't speak any English it was really cool but there was one point late in the late in the evening where I threw him the ball he's like three feet from the basket and I'm at half court and I said out loud, I'm like, please let this kid score a basket. Yeah. And he, and he finally made one nice. and you could just see, man. And I don't know, I don't know who was more happy, me or him. Yeah. But, but I think that, you know, especially sitting in where we're sitting now, those proud dad moments are a lot of fun. Yeah. And I think that Maverick really had one there. And I, I think it happened at the end of the movie too, where, you know, him and Rooster, they kind of had their, they, they got it out of their system. Yeah, they got it out of their you system. Know, they They're did. working on the P-51 they, together. Yeah. They they went to the mattresses, and uh, and they got it out of their system. And then they were able to just kind of look at each other, and you could just tell this look on Maverick's face was like he had a proud dad moment. And I think that that was an interesting interesting way for him to turn a corner there, going from, like you said, I'm kind of the solo dude, you know, a loner, probably why he ended up in the test environment. There were glimpses of it early on where he goes, yeah, I know what's going to happen to the rest of the team if I don't do this. But then to see that really come to fruition at the end of the movie, I thought was really neat. Yeah. I think that that compassion and that pride of, of maybe, you know, stepping into a new role. I I really think that, I really think that was pretty cool. And, and, you know, almost along the same lines, Rooster had a, a neat kind of close up or wrap up there. What was his, what was his big kind of end game? What do you moment? think it was? Well, I think it was he gained some confidence 
for sure. And, um, and he learned a lesson in sometimes you just have to, you just have to go for it. You know, there, you can't overanalyze everything and you, and you definitely can't play it safe all the time. Sometimes you got to accept some risk, you know, and and we, when we're doing mission planning and, and even in execution, we talk about operational risk. We talk about tactical levels well, of what's risk. what's the commander's and, intent? And what's the, what's the acceptable level of risk? Exactly. What's the that's ALR? how you're going to build your game plan. What's the ALR? What's the TLR? What's the ORM? You know, and, and, and we go into missions and we try to mitigate as much as we can, but man, there, there comes a time where you just got to say, fuck it. Yep. You know, I got to get these bombs on this target or I got to kill this bad guy or he's just going to wreck. He's going to fuck our couch, man. Yeah. And I think that Rooster maybe learned a good lesson yeah. about that. Stop playing it safe all the time. Yeah, and I think that, too, you're right. There was probably those messages that he had carried, you know, whether it was, you know, Maverick doesn't think I'm good enough or whatever he was mm-hmm. fighting from his having lost his dad and yeah. what he was trying to prove. And, you know, that event allowed him to overcome that. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was able to kind of put some of that behind him. Yep. For sure. Hangman learned a lesson, I think, in, in humility a little bit. For sure. This is something that I've been telling the boys since they were old enough to understand it is, Sometimes the best team doesn't win. Sometimes the best dude doesn't get the job. Maybe you're outperformed at that moment. How many times on Saturday afternoons do we see a scrub team beat a top-level team in football? Yeah, sure. You know, you see it every year. You see these Cinderellas or you see somebody beat a team that they weren't supposed to beat going for job interviews. Maybe you're better than that dude on paper, but for whatever reason they picked him. I've I've been I've fallen into that category a couple of times. Sure. Sometimes it sucks, man. Sometimes it's a tough pill, but I go back to know your role and execute that role well. And I thought Hangman did that in the end. Yeah, he did. He was he was given an opportunity to learn a lesson, and he learned that lesson. Yep. And then Bob, I'm not, I'm not even really sure that Bob really changed. Bob didn't change. I think, Bob, Bob Bob was solid I think, throughout. I think man. he was just pretty pretty flat. Be like the Bob. Yeah. That's the <laughs> message of this. <laughs> be one. Be like Bob. Be like Bob. Yeah. That's how we'll close the. That's how we'll close it out. Yes, just be like be Bob. Like Bob. <laughs> that's awesome. Overall, Top Gun Maverick, three thumbs up. Yeah, I, I mean, it. like I said, it was. Uh, I thought it, I thought it did a decent job of paying respects to the mm-hmm. first movie. The cinematography that they did in this Fantastic. movie was phenomenal. Yeah. Like, that's probably as good of a picture of what you're going to see or ever get of what it's actually like to be in yeah. a high performance fighter aircraft and just yeah. the strain, the pull, the speed, all of it. And then Hollywood. Should have hired us to come up with the tactical game plan because theirs fucking sucked. (laughs) I was talking to, we had a guy come through the schoolhouse here. He was an 06 and he had been at, he had been at Fallon for the last couple of years. And he and I were sitting at the console one day, just kind of talking. And, and he says, yeah, man, I, uh, I came to work one day and there was a whole, whole bunch of civilians there. And they told us to all leave our cell phones outside. And they brought us into this little theater and everything. And they showed them all the raw footage from where the Blue Angels, the Blue Angels were contracted out to, to fly, most, to of fly that. most of that stuff because it's, I mean, there was some some close formation flying that yeah. we really don't do on no. a daily basis. Well, and there were some, some of the shots too, like when they're coming in, before they, when their feet wet coming in over the, the land for the attack run, with that shot out of the bottom of that F-18, I mean, he couldn't have been more than yeah. 10 feet off the surface of the water. Yeah. Seriously. You know, and a couple of the desert shots where they're down low like that too in that valley. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that's got to, uh, that had to be one of the blues. Yeah. 
Uh, how about that attack formation? Assume attack formation, oh, and yeah. they all move right to his dead six. I'm yeah, like, you it's assholes! The lamest thing I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Spread it out, assholes! But yeah, he was telling me about the raw footage. He goes, "Dude, the raw footage is better than the than the cut up footage." Oh, I bet it is. And it was like fifteen minutes straight of just raw F 18s just slinging jets at each other. I That's bet, cool. Yeah, that was that had to have been badass to be yeah. able to see that. What else we got on Top Gun Maverick? I think that's it, man. We drew it back to our values. We we told some cool guy stories. Yeah. I, like I said, big takeaways are just, you know, a lot of these guys are dealing with previous messaging and not dealing with those things or maintaining good relationships or being completely ego-driven. And a lot of that derives from them pro- probably not really understanding who they really are and having gone through the process of defining core values and then figuring mm-hmm. out how to practice and walk in that integrity. Yeah. All valid. Except for Bob. <laughs> Be like Bob. Yeah. Bob, Bob's probably been shit on a few times in his, in his career or his life. He's learned that lesson of humility. Yeah. I think for the listeners, man, especially for the younger guys realize that, you know, the majority of the characters in this movie are in your age group. They're probably 30 or younger. Yeah. Maybe, maybe slightly over 30. None of them really had families. I don't think at least uh-uh. they weren't, they weren't alluded to in the movie. Nope. And they're still figuring this shit out. Yeah, for right? sure. They're still learning lessons, man. And I just told you a story about uh, a lesson that I learned when I was in my mid thirties. So yeah. if you're, if you're constantly, if you're feeling like you're constantly getting your junk kicked in by life, don't get discouraged. Yeah. You know, keep your head up and keep moving forward because you'll eventually get it. Yep. it it's, We've said it a million times. This is a journey. It's a process. It is. It's a process and it's a journey. And and we saw it in every character that we talked about, except for maybe Bob, they had a turning point. You know, there was some significant event or or some learning opportunity that they took advantage of and they were able to either redefine or begin to walk in their values. And and I thought that was unique in that. So please, from the 18 to the 32 year olds, keep your chin up. Keep moving forward. Yeah, for sure. Parting shots? Nope. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Be the one. Be like Bob. Thanks for flying with the B1 Change 1 podcast. If you got something out of this show, then be the one and share it in your circles of influence. You can be our wingman through our website at www.b1change1.com. That's B and the number one, change and the number one.com. We invite you to be the one and join our fighter squadron on social media at B1 Change 1 on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You can follow us at Paul Roscoe White on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, as well as Roscoe's website, www.paulroscoewhite.com. You can email us from the website and please leave comments, share, and ask questions, or leave ideas of things you would like to discuss on future podcasts. Most importantly, be the one that helps us win the algorithm by leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks for joining. Until next time, be the one.